0: All right, let's go ahead now and keep your place there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and let's take our copy of the Confession this morning, chapter 15 of Repentance Unto Life and Salvation. And we are looking at, or at least we'll begin to look at this morning, paragraph number 4. Paragraph number 4 of the Confession reads this way. As repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, So it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. Paragraph 4, it continues the idea of the practical life of repentance. It continues to show us of this ongoing nature of repentance. How that, as we've already learned, repentance is not a one-time deal. This is a life of repentance. It is a lifelong repentance that we are, in fact, looking at. Now, we understand that the price for this, the ability uh, for us to be able to even repent, is, of course, a gift of God. But I would also say to you this morning that repentance is a painful process. Uh, This is not something that is meant to be taken lightly, nor is it something that we're to say, well, this is just something I get out of the way each and every day. Uh, I came across a a quote from R.C. Sproul that I absolutely loved on this. He said, the price of repentance is very, very painful. True repentance is honest before God. And the emphasis is on true repentance is honest before God. And truly, if we are honest before God in our sin we understand that even every day we stand in need of repentance so why do we need to daily repent what is this ongoing repentance well the very simple fact of the matter is believers sin every day so because sinners sin every day repentance is this ongoing process that's in the life of a believer now paragraph four is really trying to drive home the reality of the point of repentance, includes confession of the sin and turning away from particular sins. Uh, oftentimes we generalize our repentance. Uh, The the confession paragraph gives you two scripture references. It gives you Luke 19.8 and 1 Timothy 1, which is the passage we read. Luke 19.8 is the portion of scripture that deals with uh, the conversion of a very familiar person uh, by the name of Zacchaeus. And of course, many of us know that story. I hope you know that story. And we often talk about climbed up the sycamore tree to see who he could see, and we understand all of those things. But understand that there's, there's a statement made in verse eight, and this is what the confession makes mention of. And it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Zacchaeus identified the particular sin in which he was guilty of. He was taking from by false accusation. That is putting his finger exactly on that which was the particular sin. In our text in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when Paul makes mention, he says, "...who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy." Because, and here's the key, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. We should not expect a lost world to repent of sin. As a matter of fact, it's impossible for an unsaved, unconverted person to repent. And it's impossible for them to put their finger upon a known particular sin. Why? Because we know that this gift of repentance is been given by God. Now, there are many people who are very adept at confessing to sin in a very general way. Uh, They're very good at repenting of all of my general sins that I committed that day. Now, remember, that quote we looked at that Sprole mentioned, again, that's not inspired scripture. It's just a good quote. He talked about true repentance, being honest before God. And if we are honest before God today, uh, we, could, we should be able to be assured in our spirit that a general repentance for all of my general sins in a given day really is not what God is looking for. That's not really repentance. Uh, that is just this, this idea of being sorrowful. But honesty before God puts its finger upon that which we are particularly guilty of. What are our particular sins? Uh, Oftentimes you can tell people who are used to just repenting generally because they are the ones who become quickly upset or defensive when someone does confront them about a specific matter or a specific sin. I would say that's a real test of our heart. How do we respond when someone else actually calls into question something in our life? Hopefully it's not the mentality today of don't judge me. It should be a response of humility. If that person's coming in the right spirit, which we've learned about how to go, but taking the beam out of your own eye before you address even another person, uh, we ought to take that as a a help to us. But true repentance, uh, even when it's confronted by specific sins, it confesses and forsakes specific sins when they become known. Remember, there is a line of, theological thinking by some that repentance is just simply confession of sin, but I would submit to you biblically repentance is a confession of sin and a turning away from those sins. It is twofold. I think everybody's okay with repentance when I just say I'm sorry and I repent for it, but I think the problem comes in when really true repentance is confession and a turning, turning away from sin and a turning to God. So you have confession, you have a turning away from particular sins and a turning to God. You have this threefold principle here. So the paragraph here is not dealing with this repentance. That is just something that we do one time. Now remember, our daily repentance is not being done in order to keep us justified. Okay, so that's a very important point. My repentance daily is not keeping me justified, nor is it making my justification more solid. Justification, remember, is a legal term. It is our legal standing before God. So we, keep, we repent of sins, and every time that we sin, uh, we cannot believe the lie that we lose our justification. You are doing no such thing. You are not losing your justification when you sin. However, we understand that justification is a once-for-all declaration that's been made by God. It is God who declares a man or a woman justified. It is not myself that declares myself justified. Why? Because God-given faith is that which rests on Christ being the sole instrument of my justification. Remember, my repentance is not the basis of my justification. Christ is the sole basis of my justification. That is the only claim I have is on Jesus Christ being the sole instrument of justification. Now, since we are only once justified, it is then where it is joined with repentance. So the work of repentance does not end in a believer's life. Chapter 11, when we uh, looked at that chapter, is an entirely a chapter on justification. And specifically, paragraph 5 of chapter 11 tells us that this justification, repentance, is all also part of our sanctification. All of these things are moving to conform us into the image of God. Now, why did the confession writers give us this specific ongoing repentance? Well, notice what it says. A repentance as repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof. It's kind of a startling couple of expressions that are given here. The body of death and the motions thereof. In other words, what the confession writers were getting at here is that although we have been redeemed, we have been declared justified, we've been redeemed from sin, we've been redeemed from death, we've been redeemed from hell, there's no longer reign of dominion of sin in our life. There is sin that still remains in the believer that needs to be mourned over and mortified. John Owen hit that as clearly as you can. He talked about mortifying the flesh, the killing of sin. Uh, This idea that repentance is just something I get sorry every day at at bedtime. Hey, I'm I'm sorry for everything I did wrong today, God. That's not true honesty before God. That's just simply a generalized statement. That's like saying, Lord, I'm sorry for everything I've done in my entire life. Open and honesty is that there should be a mourning for our sin. So repentance, how long does repentance last? It is a lifelong task. So what does Paul teach us about the Christian? The Christian is a redeemed sinner who is a new creation in Christ. As a new creation in Christ, Paul instructs that we are to put off the old man and put on the new. But there is still sin. And there will be sin there until the day You die, and the soul is then made perfect. So until Christ returns, and the resurrection and the glorification of the saints occurs, there will be a need for ongoing repentance. What is the confession trying to steer us clear of? Well, it already identifies the seriousness of sin, the body of death, and the motions thereof. So what is the idea, the confession writers, and I believe even what Paul was teaching us in the text today, it is to steer us clear of self-deception. Self-deception is often most evidenced or noticed in the life of a saint who will not forsake sin. That saint believes that they certainly are okay that day or that I have reached a point where I do not need to repent. But the reality is, is someone who is consistently unwilling to say, I am a sinner who has particular sins in my life that I'm fully aware of, one who consistently refuses to not only confess that but forsake that sin, is not walking in that newness of life that Paul talked about. Now, again, is that affecting his or her justification if they're truly justified? No, but it should be the evident fruit of what has taken place in the life of a believer. An unrepentant believer is almost, it's almost unthinkable. Can a believer be an unrepentant believer? Not in the true sense of biblical terms. Now, are we to declare who is and who isn't a believer uh, if there is no faith in Jesus Christ, if they acknowledge that Christ is not the only way of salvation? There is is ample evidence to suggest maybe that person does not know Christ. But again, I cannot declare your justification today. I can't declare with 100% certainty that you are justified and your standing in Christ is okay. But one of the evidences of our standing is repentance, And is there this ongoing repentance in our life? This self-deception, repentance helps steer us away from unbiblical, and I would suggest unreasonable expectations of perfection. Uh, There is nowhere in scripture uh, that we are told that we can be perfectly obedient. Forsaking sin does not mean perfect obedience. Now, there are some who believe that they can reach, and they have reached perfect obedience in this life, which is a frightening, frightening thought. I don't know where they get the text to base that upon because there's more scripture that says about the ongoing nature of that old man living inside of us. Nobody has reached perfect obedience. And often the argument is made about, oh, you're one of those churches that believes in repentance that also includes the forsaking of sin. Well, that's impossible to forsake sin. Even Paul's not saying that all sin means, forsaking sin means you live a life of perfect obedience, because that's impossible. But what he is saying is that there is this desire with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. We desire to be in pursuit of that perfect obedience. I mean, wouldn't you think that the believer would want to at least try to be perfectly obedient? Or would they do the opposite of what the the Apostle Paul warned about, by not using grace as a license to sin? This is the pursuit of the believer. There is nobody perfect. Uh, There is no believer who is perfect. But that imperfect saint should be mourning over his or her imperfections. A Christian is concerned about every sin not just some and i would submit to you that especially when sin becomes made known to us those are the sins that should occupy our heart and occupy our mind so first of all the confession in paragraph four is trying to move us away from self-deception secondly the confession in this paragraph is trying to bring god's word to the very forefront of our hearts why is it important to hide God's word in our heart. As a child and in children's ministries, we teach our children from a very young age to hide God's word in their heart. It becomes a a call to obedience in our young people. Hide God's word in your heart. Where does the line get drawn that we stop hiding God's word in our heart? When we're 18, when everything else changes, or so the world says, 18, you now become a grown-up, 18, you become responsible. And by the way, none of those things are true they're 50-year-old children. Eighteen has nothing to do with your maturity level, has nothing to do with whether you're an adult or mature. But the reality here is is that we put God's word in our heart. So repentance teaches us from the scriptures that repentance is much more than just a change of mind. Or a vague awareness of some sin in my life. I'm afraid that repentance being defined as just a change of mind does not go deep enough into the biblical concept of repentance. I've had a change of mind about a lot of things. In my mind, there's things I said you could never move me off of years ago that I moved off of. There are things that I said, look, I am steadfast and sure in this, and I know I'm right, and if you come and ask me when I'm 100 years old, I'll still feel the same way. The problem is my mind changed. Now, my mind changing in some of those things did not always affect my behavior. They just became something I changed my mind on. I can change my mind on repentance today and say, okay, I'll give you a little bit. I've changed my mind about what I think about repentance. No, it, repentance is more than a change of mind. Remember, it's a confession of sin, a turning away from that sin, and a turning unto God. It's very, very easy to just make an assault on sin in general. It's another thing to put your finger upon that which God particularly hates. It is the idea that we put our finger on sins, like sadly what our nation is guilty of abortion. That is a great sin of this nation. It is a great sin of this world. It is not a person's choice, it's not a decision, it's not something I've thought about, I have peace with. According to God, it is a sin. And God puts his fingers on the reality that it is his decision alone to grant life and it is his decision alone to take life. And man never has that right except given under the responsibilities of the government who's been given the rights in certain cases to take a man's life out of a capital case. But you understand that God puts his finger on these sins and he says this is a sin. This is what it is. It's easy for us as a church to say, you know, we're we're against sin. Now that may sound good, but what is sin and what particular sins are you against of? Because you know, not all people define sin the same. There are things that biblically the Bible says is sin that some churches will not even call sin anymore. They'll say that's not sin, they'll say that's a preference. It's amazing how we have moved and things that are sin have now rolled over into the preference category that were never meant to be preferences. They, it rolled. And yet, if we're aware of it, and God puts his finger on that through the Spirit, true repentance deals with particular specific sins. Charles Hodge wrote about sin. He said, No man has any right to presume that he hates sin in general unless he practically hates every sin in particular. And no man has any right to presume that he is sorry for and ready to renounce his sins in general unless he is conscious of practically renouncing and grieving for each particular sin into which he falls. I think Hodge had it right. Hodge was not talking about repentance being some general vague awareness but a particular pointing to these things. So thirdly, the confession writers here in paragraph four show us that true repentance involves involves dealing not simply with sin in general, but with our sins in particular. Notice it says, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. Most every one of us, some of the... Some of the theologians of the past and some of the preachers even of today uh, don't deal with, they use a word called constitutional sins. Uh, they are sins which in that form are sins that regular, regularly show themselves. They manifest themselves in certain people and they are peculiar temptations. Every one of you today, including myself, have peculiar temptations. Particular temptations that someone sitting right next to you might not even have. And those particular temptations, of course, the temptation is not the sin. It's the yielding to the temptation that becomes the sin. You, you, you as a believer are being confronted with temptation every moment of your life. There's not a single moment in your life that there's not some temptation bombarding you. It is a continual temptation bombardment of this particular sins. Now, what can happen with that is we can become very prideful. Even though we know our constitutional sins, we don't think we have any others. We say, you know, the only real problem I have in my life is such and such. No, the real problem you have is you have a, you have a problem with all sin. You have a problem with the temptations. We have a problem. It's it's there. So don't let the constitutional sins become the thing that say, okay, I just got to deal with my pet sins. The reality is is we are assaulted every day with various sins. But we are prone to some things. In some people, there is a prone to wander towards envy. Uh, There are those who are prone to wander uh, toward covetousness. Uh, There are some, and I would say this is a bigger problem in the church than what we've ever cared to admit over the years. There is a problem with pornography, male and female. Let's quit labeling this a male problem. This is a big issue. The church has been afraid to talk about this. Well, this church, we shouldn't talk about those things. Oh, yes, we should. And those particular sins uh, might be something that you're prone to. Uh, Maybe there's some that, another one we don't talk a lot about, uh, but struggle with gluttony. Too much of a thing. That's that's probably one of the most ignored. People just seem to forget about gluttony and the overabundance of anything. You know, the old Baptist jokes about uh, the overabundance of food as if it's something to be proud of. that I, 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 I eat myself into oblivion. Gluttony can be it could be something that's not bad in of itself, but it's something that occupies such a great part of my life. We know when we studied through the, uh, the book of the first and second Thessalonians, uh, the Bible's very particular there about sin. Uh, it, it brought out in the Thessalonians uh, that before their conversion, one of their great sins was idolatry. Much like what Paul said, before I, was a, before I was a saint, a believer, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor. Well, the Thessalonians were known for their idolatry. Now, if you think there's not a proneness to go back to what you once were, and you don't think you have to guard against that, you've, got, you've been self-deceived. You're, you're deceiving yourself. To declare full-out victory on your constitutional sins is really a dangerous place to be. Now, in the power of God, you certainly, I'm not saying you can't get victory in this. But we're very quick to declare victory, and it's at the moment we declare victory that moments later, that constitutional temptation shows up and we yield to it once again. Daily, ongoing repentance. How was their repentance in the Thessalonians demonstrated? Paul uses a very specific terms, how you turned from idols and turned to the living God. He didn't just say, hey, you took all those idols to come up to a platform and you stomped on them. No, he said, you turned from the idols and you turned to the living God. There was a particular direct turning away. Their repentance was demonstrated by the turn. So they turn from a specific sin. So it should be done with us that though we are redeemed, we engage with a daily, maybe even a moment-by-moment battle with sin. And so we have to identify, repent of, and I would go one step further and say, kill or mortify the particular sins to which we are particularly prone. That's what the confession writers were mentioning here. What do we do? We name it. Honesty before God. Folks, listen, we we have lived way too long to get to this place where we're just just not going to name it. Listen, the best thing you can do is just be honest by God, honest before God, and just name it. Name it for what it is. Name your sin. God already knows, but we we are very prone to say, listen, I don't really have a problem with this. Listen, I I counseled mostly young people for a lot of years, teenagers in particular, and, and it was a scary thought of how they really, in their mind, were convinced this is not really a problem. And it was a big problem. I would talk to moms and dads, and moms and dads would say, no, they don't really have a problem with that. That's one of the first biggest mistakes you'll ever make is you're not naming it. Listen, if you're struggling with pornography, name it. If you're struggling with lust and gluttony and covetousness and envy and pride, name it. Don't just simply say, it's not really a problem. Listen, that's the gift and the beauty of the Holy Spirit, that He's putting conviction upon you so that you can name it and that you are continually growing in the nurture and the admonition and being conformed to the image of Christ. Conviction is a gift of God, folks. Because if God didn't bring conviction in your life, you are seated here today. Well, you wouldn't be seated here. You are, would be dead in your trespasses and sins. It was conviction that began to that opened your eyes to the truth of who God really is. So the confession writers understood that this forsaking of sin is not just a general, but it's also very specific. It's ongoing. Repentance should be a turning away from all known sin, generally and every known sin, particularly with faith in Christ and understanding for the mercy that comes from God. Listen, if if you are truly a Bible-minded believer today, I am not telling any of you today something you don't already know. You know, coming to preaching and coming to Bible studies oftentimes is not to introduce to you some brand new thing you've never heard so that you're wowed by what the speaker that day said. You're often reminded of what you already know. I didn't have to tell you you're in a battle, that you're in a spiritual warfare, that every day you are fighting tooth and nail to keep sin controlled in your life. And that no matter how holy and righteous we feel and we get up and our feelings are often this very dangerous barometer of what we really think, what we really feel. We say, listen, I can't really be struggling with this because I'm a church-going folk and I'm reading my Bible every day. I can't possibly be struggling with something like pornography because I'm in the Word every day. Name it. Be honest before God and say, I'm going I'm to own, I'm owning up to this. I'm owning the reality that I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with covetousness, envy, whatever it is. Old sins sometimes come back to the surface. New sins that we never thought would come to light in our life. By the way, new circumstances can breed new temptations. Things you didn't deal with before, you're now put in new circumstances you didn't have before. It's a, it's a new thing. When people go through a change of life, For example and we have we have students that attend they come to our church during the school year even that change from leaving mom and dad's house and coming into a a college environment i don't care if it is a christian college there are new circumstances that create new temptations that you didn't have before but that's not just college students You start a new job as an adult or you go into a new environment. New circumstances create new temptations. So just when you think, hey, I got my life in control, I know where all the temptations are coming from, then new circumstances come, and now you're being bombarded with temptations you didn't know were there. That's why it's often very, very important that every decision you make, and this is kind of a rabbit trail I'm running on, every time you make a decision, make sure that that decision is based upon the spiritual well-being of yourself. I've watched people make a shipwreck of their life because they thought that job over there was more important than the spiritual welfare of their family, and they moved to a place and said, listen, we have nowhere that we're going to be fed by the Word of God, but we'll work it out. Listen, the church is important in the life of you personally. It's not your dictator. It's not your authority. But listen, that's as big a part of the decision that you make as anything you do is, listen, If this is part of God's will, he's not going to send me out in the wilderness somewhere without somewhere that I'm going to be fed. Now, Sadly, and our church is unique, for many of us, this isn't isn't just like around the corner for you. you. You come a ways to come to this place. And yet, it's the place where God has put you in order to be fed from the word. And all these things come together to help us remind of where we are. So repentance is this continual, almost constant, daily experience for people who are centered upon Christ and are centered upon the Word of God. Repentance is not a temporary experience. To be unaware of the just punishment of sin, to not deal with that is to ignore what the Scripture says about it. Really, the things that arise out of us when our sin is, it's our own sadness, it's sorrow. Uh, we, we, we realize the sorrow that it brings, but then we also realize the thankfulness and the joy and the gladness that we get out of being forgiven. That sin that we're hesitant to name, you're, you're, you're robbing yourself, you're putting yourself, yourself through great misery. Because there is forgiveness with God. There is the remission. There is the forgiveness of God. We sometimes summarize just by what we've considered here today. We can sometimes summarize this by using the illustration of a tree. True repentance, as we've talked about, grows in what's called gospel soil. It's God's sovereign grace is where this comes from. And as it works in the life of sinful men and women, it calls them, remember we studied about effectual calling, it calls us from death unto life. But the very roots of a strong tree that is being held there, they are being held by the roots of that true repentance. That is that biblical idea of true grief over sin leads me to this ongoing repentance. But I cannot miss the majesty and the mercy of God in all this he didn't have to remember we've talked about if if god was obligated to show you mercy then it's no longer mercy now i know in our man-centered churches sadly this is what's happened we treat god in his perfectness and his holiness and his holy his righteousness that god is obligated to do a b and c if i god is not under any obligation to do anything And he wasn't under obligation to open your eyes. And he wasn't under obligation to open your ears. That's why it's called mercy. He will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. People are so afraid of passages like Romans 9 because they're afraid to deal with the majesty of who God really is. That's what's lacking in most of our churches is we do not have a true awareness of who God really is. And we have so long been moving down this track of man-centered Christianity that's all about what I do, all about how God's dependent upon me, and God is not dependent upon you in anything. God can't depend upon us for anything except that we're going to keep sinning. Truly, that's all God can say. I know for one fact, I know what every single person will continue to do all their life until they get to glory. They're going to keep sinning. But there's mercy with me. Every single sin, one single sin, would sufficiently have condemned you for all of eternity. And we go all the way back to the original sin, that even had you never sinned personally, biblically, you already fell, and you fell in Adam. That's the only sin that was necessary to condemn you, and yet you're not condemned. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question we ask today is, since God is willing to forgive the sins of those, to come, those who come to him in faith, and repentance is the very hope of the sinner, why is that not the continued hope of the believer? If my hope, was found in the repentance that God gave me, the gift of repentance. Why would my hope stop? There's still a great hope in this ongoing repentance. Back to that tree example, those roots of repentance are firm, they are sure. The trunk and the branches of this ongoing true repentance, it is the turning away from sin, the turning to God. And the fruit of true obedience is the pursuit after perfect obedience even though I realize I cannot be perfectly obedient. It's the pursuit of it. We do that not dependent upon our own strength, but we do that in dependence upon the Spirit. I hope that